0: All right, enough of that mushy stuff, all right? First Thessalonians chapter one, and then Acts chapter 17, we're going to talk about a really cool church today, and that is the church that was planted at Thessalonica, and uh, just so you know, Thessalonica was a place about 100 miles from Philippi, uh, and Thessalonica, this is pretty crazy, was a town at the time, or a city at the time, of between 70 and 100,000 people, and so in those days, that was a massive city. And so you got to know as we read about this today, we're going to talk about urban Church planting and urban church, uh, urban church work. Um, remember, as we go through this, the church is not the building. The church is not the organization. The church is the people. And so, when we talk about the urban church today, we're talking about you and we're talking about me in the way that we interact with one another for the kingdom of God. And so, First Thessalonians chapter one, and then Acts chapter seventeen. We're going to go back and forth in Paul's experience with the church, and also what he says about them later on. It's It starts with this question. Have you ever had someone that you use as a role model in your own life? Okay. have you ever had someone that you used as a role model uh, for you in your own life for some of you you've had work role models you've had school role models you got family role models hopefully you got some faith role models and then for you old athletes in here maybe you got one of those athletic role models that you had uh, back in the day somebody that you looked up to and you went I want to be able to walk the same path that they did uh, and do uh, and do what they did uh, in athletics and so just so you know uh, for me in athletics my freshman year in high school there was a guy that that we all looked up to named Jeff Horn, and Jeff may be watching today, uh, but Jeff was a senior when I was a freshman, and back in those days, uh, in Texas, large school 5A, that was the biggest school district, uh, the biggest uh, division that you could have in high school athletics, and my freshman year, we won the state championship in 5A large school state athletics, uh, Monterey High School won the baseball championship, and Jeff, Jeff was a great football player, uh, and then in the baseball game, uh, the state championship, he he hit the game-winning double uh, to score the runs in the state championship. We all looked up to Jeff, thought he was the coolest, uh, and when we started the Fellowship Christian Athletes at the middle school that I was at, guess who our uh, first speaker we ever had was? It was Jeff Horn. We brought Jeff in to speak because, again, we all thought he was the coolest. Just so you know, that stuff carries over even into adulthood. Jeff ended up working. I think he's the president of a bank now, uh, but Jeff, uh, when we went to watch uh, Texas Tech play in the Final Four uh, the only only time they will ever make the final four ever before or since uh, when they lost to Virginia. Some of you Virginia grads are in here, and uh, I hate you. No, I'm just kidding. kidding. Okay, Lost in overtime to Virginia, but at the final four, Autumn and I are walking in, and like every person who ever lived in Lubbock was there uh, celebrating Texas Tech that week, and uh, I remember I saw Jeff Horn on a street corner walking over by the stadium in Minneapolis, and I saw again my ninth grade year hero, and it was like I was 14 years old again seeing my hero over there and he came across the street and he goes Zach Randall's. I've been listening to you online and I couldn't speak I was like oh you know what I mean my, my junior high hero knows who I am has listened to my sermons and he was like this has been weird I'll see you later and he kind of walked off and I was like that was awesome alright all that to say if you got those moments there's sometimes every now and again somebody serves as a model in your life a role model to help you get to the next level in what you're trying to do well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul calls the church at Thessalonica a model church when it comes to city ministry. Look at what it says, 1 Thessalonians 1, and we're going to read verses 2 through 10. Paul writes, we always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers, and we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, look at this, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, man, faith, love, and hope, you guys are doing it to the nth degree. It says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived when we were among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord and in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now look at this. And so you became a model to all the believers. Underline you became a model to all the believers specifically in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out. Underline the Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and but your faith in God has become known everywhere. I know, and your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave to us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, stop right there for just a minute. What a lead in and description about that early urban church. Paul says, everybody knows about the way that you've been living. You are a model for other believers in what faith in the urban setting is supposed to look like. What a beautiful introduction that we get there. And then he comes back and says, whenever I start to tell stories about what's happening among you, he goes, I can't believe it. They already know about it. They've already heard about the cool stuff that God is doing. He says, it's rung out to all the corners of the world. If you're taking notes, write this down. Urban churches have the distinction of being closer to the mouth of the megaphone. Let me say that again. Urban churches have the distinction of being closer to the mouth of the megaphone. It's not that urban church is better than suburban or rural church, but one of our big pieces that identifies us amongst the others is that we are closer to the mouthpiece of the megaphone. The things that happen here get broadcast all over the country, and in the case of Washington, D.C., they get broadcast all over the world. It's not that it's more special. It's not that it's more important. But one of our attributes is that we are next to the mouthpiece of the megaphone. People know what happens here in the city. If some of you have moved here from somewhere else, all you got to do is say D.C., and every one of them has an opinion or something they want you to tell these people up here, right? I'm telling you, it's just the way that it works. If you've lived up here and you've stayed here for a long time, you probably have had a relative that moved away and told you what those people It's funny, down south, we hear Washington. It's not Washington, it's Washington. You tell those people in Washington this or that. Now, here's the deal. It's not better or worse. It's just a thing. Why do they say that to us? Because we are near the mouthpiece of the megaphone. What happens here, those stories ring out all across the globe. And that's not just politically. That's not just governmentally. Uh, It is specific to spiritual things that take place as well. So years ago, Autumn got to go. uh, This was when we were dating. So this was 17 years ago. Um, Autumn went to hear a woman named Beth Moore preach and do a recording. Uh, And when uh, she went to hear Beth Moore preach, she came up here to Baltimore. There was this recording they did. She and I were dating at the time. And so we were like, this is back when you used to get charged by the minute on your cell phone. And so we were like writing postcards to each other back and forth. It's really cute and disgusting. So anyway, we were doing that back and forth to each other. Well, I'll never forget, Autumn when the video series comes out, there were thousands of women at this event, but the way the camera angle is set up... Every third shot is Autumn nodding and taking notes in the crowd. It was just the way that the deal set up. So still, when people will do that, Bible study to this day, they're like, I have no clue what Beth Moore is saying because all I could see is Autumn right there on the side. Right? It's not that Autumn was the only one there, but because of the camera shot, because of the angle, the focus was on her, and she very specifically is documented at being at this event. Again, the picture there is for urban churches. We are closer to the mountain piece of the megaphone. We are in the frame. And because of that, we have opportunities that other places don't have. And so it addresses this big question today as we study the story of how Thessalonica, the church there got planted. It addresses this question. What are the attributes of a model Christ-centered city church? Let me say that again. What are the attributes of a model Christ-centered city church? And remember, the church is not the building. The church is not the organization. The church is the people. What are the attributes of of each one of us in order for us to be a model city church. Are you ready? Now look at Acts 17, flip over, Acts 17, and we're going to start in verse 1, picking up our story of how the church got planted in Thessalonica. It says, so when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Underline, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, underline, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, underline, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ," he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded. Underline some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Underline a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. Underline not a few prominent women. What we have here from the very beginning is Paul. If you ever read Romans chapter one, when Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel," it's a, it's a, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. First for the Jew then for the Gentile. He's actually outlining in first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, his church planting strategy. He went in and would preach in a synagogue because these were people with a basic theological understanding of the Messiah just missing the Jesus piece. So he started in the synagogue and from that moment with people that he identified with, he then began to preach the gospel throughout the city. And we find here that a very diverse congregation begins to build. In the urban setting, we find that there are Gentiles That there are God-fearing Jews, and specifically, there are women in a male-dominated society that are willing to be open to this gospel message that the Spirit has called out to in order to be saved. This actually makes a lot more sense since we planted Waterfront Church. Because in the beginning, Paul comes to the city and he tries to identify with people with a bit of the same background that he has. He goes to the synagogue. Remember, Paul went to the Pharisee school. He grew up in Jewish culture. And so for Paul to go to the synagogue, that's basically the most comfortable place for him to go where it's real easy to lay the foundation. The theological foundation's already been laid. He adds the Jesus piece to it and then all of a sudden it changes everything. But when we came to the city, if you look back over the early picture. Of Waterfront Church? I grew up in Texas with the school in Oklahoma. There were a lot of Texans and Oklahomans with us, still are, but there were a lot of Texans and Oklahomans with us in the beginning. Was it because we were trying to plant a Texas Oklahoma church? Absolutely not. But in the beginning, you just want a church to exist, and anyone that God sends you is an absolute miracle. Over time, in the community, it began to look like the community, And an urban church doesn't look like one group of people. It looks like everyone gathered together in the city. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? What are the attributes of a model Christ-centered city church? Number one, they understand that the gospel is for everyone. Let me say that again. They understand that the gospel is for everyone. If we truly are going to love our neighbors... Those are not just neighbors that look like us. It has to be this Christ-centered perspective that if we are in this community, that we are going to do our best to love everyone the way that God loved us, the way that he has gone after us. I'll never forget, that's one thing to say. It's another thing to really try to walk it in the middle of starting a church. So our church was just a few weeks old. Some of you were here the week that this happened. Um, Our church was not very old. We had a woman who'd been living homeless uh, that had been coming to the church those first few weeks, and she was so deeply beloved by me, by our staff, and and by our church at that point. We were meeting on the second floor of the Marriott Hotel for all of our stuff. In fact, some of you who've gone to small groups over there, imagine that being the entire church at this point. We'd all just meet up there for service. It was beautiful, uh, but it would sometimes be a little bit intense. And so one particular week, a woman who been with us for about six weeks at this point, plugged into Bible study in small group, struggle with schizophrenia, but whenever she would do drugs, it would turn a bit violent. And so one particular Sunday morning, this woman walks up, points her fingers like a gun at the worship leader during the first song, and then begins to scream the F word over and over again. And so that was not cool. All right. Just not cool. And so she does this Well, we didn't have protocol in place because the church is about six weeks old at this point. We didn't have protocol in place. Uh, We were just barely meeting together at that point. And praise God, there was a woman in the congregation uh, who was a a mental health specialist. And she goes up, wraps her arms around the woman, starts to whisper something in her ear. And then all of a sudden, that woman runs out the door and runs out the side. Well, again, we were connected to this lady. Six weeks we've been spending time with her. She ran out. Well, I walked over to the mental health specialist and I go, thank you for uh, helping in the situation. What did you say to her? And she goes, Oh, I just very gently told her I was calling the police. And we were like, Good move. All right, there you go. That'll work. <laughs> We'd never dealt with it before. It's our first time. So after that, I feel torn. I got one group in my ear saying that woman better never come through the doors of the church again. And then I got another group going, we should absolutely love and take care of this woman because Jesus would leave the 99 to go after the one. And I'm telling you, I'm caught in the middle of both worlds going, I completely agree. You can't have someone screaming the F word and pointing their fingers like a gun in the middle of worship. But at the same time, my heart was broken for this woman. I loved her so deeply. So... I did what anybody would do in that case. I called somebody who was a role model and asked their opinion. I called Mark Batterson over at National Community Church. When I called him, I said, here's what happened. And he goes, man, you got a big heart. He said, we've been here 20 years. And he said, my heart might not be in the same place yours is right now. He said, you feel broken for her, don't you? I said, absolutely. He said, but you can't let her run the service, can you? I said, no, we can't do that. And he goes, well, you need to pray and the Lord will provide a path for you so that you can do both those things. I was kind of like, yeah, thanks a lot. you know. But it was true. <laughs> it was accurate. We sat down and we prayed, and here's what we came up with. At Waterfront Church, some of you have heard the term thrown out of church or excommunicated. You cannot be excommunicated from Waterfront Church. Okay? You cannot be thrown out of Waterfront Church. But we decided that day that we would enforce suspension. And the idea is that there are times where there's a cooling off period for someone who's caused trouble in the gathering where for safety's sake, they cannot come back in for a time. But we met with this woman at Subway over here by Canal Park and said, here's the deal. You got a three-week suspension. You can't come back into the worship services until you get clean and we know that you're safe to be around again. But... It was C.J. Monroe who was here with me at the time. Some of you remember C.J., our original youth minister? C.J. and I said, here's what we'll do. We want to meet with you every Thursday for lunch here at Subway. We will buy your lunch. We'll be here together, and we will continue the fellowship. Leave the 99 to go after the one. And you know what? She met with us for lunch. Not only that, she ended up reconnecting in fellowship with the church, and then eventually she had her medication that finally got balanced out, and she got to move into a house and move off the street. Now listen to me. i tell you that story just to say, an urban church has to understand, for us to love our neighbors, it's not going to look like, if you grew up in a rural community church, we're not going to look like that because that's not what our context looks like. For those of you who grew up in a suburban setting where you had so much square footage, massive facilities, I mean, you could sit in one of those throne chairs really spread out, you know what I mean? That's not who we are. You're sitting in little tiny 16-inch banquet chairs, right? I mean, that's what you gotta do. Some of you are like, man, I gotta fast this next week just so I can fit in the church chair. I get that, I get that. Now listen to me. It's a different context. The things that you expect here, Christ-centered model churches, Understand, it's going to look differently because our context looks different. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? There's a big caveat. Without compromising the gospel message, there must be a place for all kinds of people at different points in their spiritual journey in the church. Without compromising the gospel message, there must be a place for all kinds of people at different points in their spiritual journey in the church. If we start to all look the same, that's a problem because it means we're not reaching the community. We've got to make sure that we take care of one another. Save your spot there in Acts 17 and flip back over to First Thessalonians. And let's read verses 9 and 10. And we're going to read them in the context of what we've just been studying. Look at what Paul says here. He says, Now about brotherly love, underline about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do all love the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. This Christ-centered model city church that we're talking about in Thessalonica were known for the way they loved each other, for the way that they loved their neighbors. We've got to come to a point where we love the people that don't look like us. It begs the question, is there room in your life to love people who don't look like you? Is there room in your life to love people who don't look like you? We do not compromise on the gospel message. But do all your friends are they the same age? Do they say have do they have the same skin color? Do they have the same background, the same amount of money in their bank accounts? Do they work in the same job? Can I tell you one of the big secrets about DC? It's two cities. There's the district, and there's the hill. Now, listen to me. Capitol Hill is a big, small town, isn't it? I want to encourage you if you're a staffer here in this room or you work in a government job up on Capitol Hill, have some friends that don't work on the hill. Is that a good word? (laughs) Have some friends. They laugh the same way in the first service. (laughs) Because some of you get trapped in your natural algorithm. And all you do is you hang out with the same people who have the same viewpoints. And I'm telling you, we got all these different social media platforms that feed the beast and feed the beast and feed the beast. And we forget that we're sharing this country that we're sharing this world, and that the focus was not to build a better country. It was truly to build the kingdom of Almighty God. We forget that that's the most important thing, that he's what changes us from the inside out. I want to encourage you, don't just have hill friends. And then, let me just be honest, you know what else we share in common in this city? We are very ambitious. Top to bottom, it doesn't matter where you live. It takes a lot to get here, and it takes a lot to stay here. I want to encourage you, Have some friends that are not quite as ambitious as you are. It's a beautiful thing to get to have friends. Not that you look at them and go, I want to be friends with you because you're a normal person, all right? (laughs) But to have people in your life so that you can remember that it's not as cutthroat everywhere as it is right here. It's a beautiful thing to remember that we are part of the world and that it does not revolve around the area that we're in. Is that a good word? I'm teaching you power if you're listening. Make sure that your friends don't all look like you. That was a mark of the early church. Is there room in your life for people who don't look? It's a room in your life to love people who don't look like you. Let's keep moving. Flip back over to Acts chapter 17. And now let's read verse 5. Crazy little verse here. You ready? It says, But the Jews were jealous. Underline, but the Jews were jealous. The ones that heard Paul preach in the synagogue and saw the Spirit move says they were jealous so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and they formed a mob underline formed a mob and started a riot in the city they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out into the crowd now stop right there for just a minute that word formed a mob every now and again i get to flex my greek prowess with you guys and today is going to be one of those days formed a mob that word in the greek is oklopoulosantes the reason i'm telling you aklop- is because that's the only place that that word is used in Scripture, and it didn't just mean formed a mob. It meant a lynch mob. They literally were trying to find Paul and Silas and to drag them out into the streets without cause against the law and kill them before a trial could be held. That's the word that's there. This group has come in and tried to form a lynch mob to go after Paul and Silas to kill them because they knew they couldn't actually get a conviction. And it says when that happened when they show up thank God Paul and Silas were not in the place where they had gone to try to find them at a dude named Jason's house that we're going to talk about in just a minute if you're taking notes write this down are you ready what are the attributes of a model Christ-centered city church number one they understand that the gospel is for everyone but number two they acknowledge God's sovereignty throughout riots and mobs They acknowledge God's sovereignty throughout riots and mobs. There are some of you, if you're really being honest, whenever riots, protests, marches, insurrections happen in this city, all of a sudden it shoots you into a frightened puppy dog mode where you start to shake, freak out, and you go on realtor.com and Zillow to figure out how you can get somewhere else. Listen to me. In this city, it's not going away. Do you know why? Because the District of Columbia was built for anger and frustration and push for change to develop and bottleneck here because there are places like the National Mall where people can go to voice peacefully what it is that they are frustrated with. So if you sit there and you go, I'm so nervous and scared because another march is happening this week, another protest is happening this week, there could be riots in the street this week, that's going to be D.C. forever. It's how the city was designed. So listen to me. Why do we get so stinking freaked out? In the case of the early church in Thessalonica, they come in, and it did not destroy the church that a riot broke out in the city that had implications on their lives. Why? Because their hope rested in Jesus. They acknowledged God's sovereignty, even in the midst of riots and mobs. If you're taking notes, write this down. Genuine spiritual growth draws the attention and the ire of the enemy. Genuine spiritual growth draws the attention and the ire of the enemy. Did you know it says in Scripture, Greater is he that's in me than any power that's in this world. Let me say that to you again. Greater is he that is in me than any power that's in this world. That means if you've got Jesus, you win. It means that the devil can't defeat you. So what does he do? The biggest biggest weapons of the enemy are distraction and discouragement. If he can't beat you, he's got to get you to quit. He's got to get you to pull back. He's got to get you to hesitate. And so what he does here is he brings up these massive distractions, these massive discouragements to try to get us to curl up into a ball and think he has more power than he does. But greater is he that's in me than any power that's in this world. During the summertime, Autumn and I love to watch with the kids a TV show called Holy Moly. Have y'all watched Holy Moly before? Anybody watched Holy Moly? I guess it's just us, Luke. All right, there you go. Luke just moved to the city, by the way. Lori, Liesl, Alec. Where's Alec today? Virginia Tech? Very good. All that to say... Holy Moly. It's a miniature golf show, and uh, they've got all these crazy miniature golf holes. You go head to head, and then the winner at the end of the whole deal wins like $250,000. And so Rob Riggle uh, is the color commentator on the deal. He's the -the in-the-face guy. Anyway, so Rob Riggle is the color commentary guy. And uh, I'll never forget, we're watching, but every other episode they have a hole on Holy Moly that I always picture is this description of D.C. It's called the distractor. The distractor is a hole where it is just a straight, easy shot, 12 feet in front of the person. But there's a big green wall right behind the hole, and they don't know what's going to show up. It's on a pivot. And it rotates around, and then it's either a marching band or somebody running around doing a crazy thing. There was one time there was a bear that they had uh, that was on the other side. And here it is, the distractor. It's a 12-foot putt, a very simple 12-foot straightaway shot. But the distraction is meant to throw you off, and you watch it. They're shaking, they're nervous, the adrenaline is flowing because they're on national television, and you watch it. The distraction takes hold, and you get to see, can they see? sink the 12-foot putt, or can't they in the middle of all that distraction? But listen to me. It's still a 12-foot putt. Whether you live in Washington, D.C., whether you live in rural America, or you live in comfortable suburbia, the calling of Almighty God on your life is the same 12-foot putt everywhere you live, that you would die to yourself every day, live for Christ because he died for us. Amen? It's the same 12-foot putt here We got some pretty intense distractions that are put in front of us. There are some of you today, and you need to make the decision that the Holy Spirit is calling you to recommit your life to God and the work he is doing in this city. Turn off realtor.com. Turn off Zillow. Morgan, sorry about that. I know you realtors. I know you, I know you gotta make the money, you gotta live, all right? But hopefully they'll buy a house here. Turn it off. Stop looking to run away. If God's called you here, he's going to provide for you. They show up to lynch Silas and Paul, and they're not at the house. By that point, the mob's not going to stick around for round two. By that point, it just is what it is. I want to encourage you. There are some of you that have gotten so worried about the world around you that you've forgotten who runs the world. It's our God. It begs the question, can you remain faithful to Christ in the midst of spectacular distractions? Let me say that again. Can you remain faithful to Christ in the midst of spectacular distractions? Commit your life to what God is doing here in this city again, and then burn the ships. Trust him. Trust him to lead you. Now let's look at Acts 17, verses 6 through 9. Here's what it says next. It says, but then they did not find them. And they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials. The mob is there, and they got to focus on something. So they dragged Jason out into the streets. He's a resident there in the city. And then some of the other brothers. It says they were shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world. And now they've come here. Now look at this. And Jason welcomed them into his house. They are defying all Caesar's decrees and breaking the law. What are they breaking the law? Which law is it? Saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Now stop right there for just a minute. When they finally get to the nuts and bolts of why this mob has been called together, they say, we're here and we put this mob together because they want to overthrow the Roman Empire. How ridiculous is that? From Jason's house? For crying out loud, the city officials at this point are going, okay, there's something that's off here. But because of the corrupt nature of the government there in Thessalonica, look at what takes place. It says here next. Verse 8, when they heard this, the crowd and all these city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others post bond and they let them go. Now notice where it says turmoil. Turmoil doesn't mean that they were all disgusted with this role of Paul and Silas. Turmoil means you got the mob saying let's kill them and you got the city officials going for what? What are we supposed to do here? And they went, well, at the very least you've caused a riot. So I guess we can instill a fine and maybe that'll make both sides happy. The Christians can keep, uh, can, can, keep living, uh, can keep living and serving the Lord together in the community and for the mob, they can see that they at least got the city to do something about it. Can I tell you what this wasn't? It wasn't fair in any circumstance. And then you have at the center of it a dude named Jason. Some of you in this room are named Jason and you need to know your namesake. This Jason that's here is a true hero. There's two schools of thought when it comes to Jason. This is really interesting. One, according to Catholic tradition, Jason was one of the 72 that Jesus commissioned when he commissioned the 72 disciples to go out into the world. Here's what's interesting. The belief is that on the day of Pentecost, that Jason continued to go and that he took the gospel to this area and he was the first believer, the person of peace. In fact, Jason's given sainthood and considered to be basically one of the apostles according to the Catholic tradition. But... There is another school of thought here. Jason was also a very prominent Greek name. And it is possible that Jason has only been a believer for a matter of weeks or months since Paul came to preach at the synagogue in the city. Can I tell you that I love that he's either somebody who's been there since the beginning or he's somebody who just came along here at the end. You know why that's cool? Because it encompasses every single one of us in this room whether you are brand new to your relationship with God or you are somebody who has walked with God for a really, really long time, the calling on your life is the same. Are you ready? Here it is. What are the attributes of a model Christ-centered city church? Number one, they understand that the gospel is for everyone. Number two, they acknowledge God's sovereignty throughout riots and mobs. And number three, they have a durable, committed relationship with Jesus. Let me say that again. They have a durable, committed relationship with Jesus you are committed to him, whether you've walked with him for years, for decades, for your whole life, or you have a durable, committed relationship if you are one who's come to face faith very recently. In this circumstance, we find that they were fined, that they went through a time of great difficulty. <sighs> Guys, we've been through kind of a, a tough stretch, haven't we? There's been a lot going on in the world and I've got to be honest, I'm preaching powerfully today on this issue, but I'm preaching it as one who's walking that same path. I can be the chihuahua sometimes, so nervous about everything that's happening. In fact, I'll just tell you this anyway. I had a panic attack a couple weeks ago. I think it's one of the reasons why the Lord has laid this so heavy on my life. Lots of stuff going on. It was hard to turn 40, I'll be honest with you. It was hard to turn 40. Um, but uh, I'm telling you, there's just a lot of worry that goes around. When we watch things that are taking place in Afghanistan, my wife and I did five years of mission work in New Orleans, and right now Hurricane Ida slamming into the side there in New Orleans and into the Louisiana coast. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now. I want to teach you something that the Lord reminded me of this week, and maybe it will help you. So Paul tells us the big three are faith, hope, and love. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he reverses the order. In verse 3, he says faith, love, and then hope develops endurance. Isn't that interesting? We get why faith and love are important, but hope's one of those things where you're like, it just seems like such a small thing. Hope is a small thing until you don't have it. In fact, probably the most defining characteristic of hell itself is there is no hope. We are fully separated from God for eternity in hell. There is no hope. It's small, but very, very important. I wanted to get something to symbolize hope for you today, so I thought about a rock. Um, This is a part of a seashell. My family, years ago, went on a a family vacation to uh, Virginia Beach. It was awesome, great place to go. Uh, But we didn't have enough money to buy souvenirs, so we came home with a whole bunch of shells uh, that we picked up on the side. Lulu gave me this one, and it sits next to my desk to symbolize that trip. Hope. Hope is something that we make the decision every single day where it is that we're going to place our hope. Do you put it in a government? And the decisions that are made there, I promise you it's shifting and changing all the time. Do we put it in a Supreme Court decision that somebody will deem that what we believe is fair is also fair for everyone else? Those decisions change all the time. Do we put it in a number in our bank account number in your bank account could be taken away at a moment's notice do we put it in fairness itself fairness itself is subjective and always changing do we put it in a relationship or a family that we grew up in or maybe even that one day we could have a forever relationship and start a family with someone else all that can change in an instant the only place that hope is worth placing is in the hands of almighty god through the shed blood of jesus christ it's why the old timers sang it and we still sing it to this day. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus name. Why on Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. There are some of you who are so worked up right now, and it's a small thing that could be a very big thing for you. Where does your hope reside? Have you placed it into something? In fact, for some of us in this city, your good decisions is what you feel like has brought you here to this moment. You need to know that even people who've made some of the best decisions I've ever known in my entire life, it can all fall apart in an instant. It's all sinking sand. But the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Where is your hope? It seems like a small thing. But it could change your entire perspective. And you don't make that decision once. You make that decision daily. My hope is in Jesus. It's the only way. Some of you have such big decisions to make in your line of work. It's the only way you can sleep at night if your hope rests in Jesus and not in the things of this world. If you're taking notes, one last quote for you today. Some ministry contexts will require suffering that others do not. Whether celebration or suppression, we belong to Jesus. Let me say that again. Some ministry contexts will require suffering that others do not. Whether celebration or suppression, we belong to Jesus. Where have you placed your hope today? There's only one place that will hold it. It begs our final question. Have Have you allowed your faith to be intimidated? Have you allowed your faith to be intimidated? It's time we put our hope in him. I love you guys. Thanks for listening today. I sure appreciate you. I'm trying my best to live this out in my own life. This city gets to me sometimes too. The weight of the world, I can feel it on my shoulders. And the truth is, it's the devil putting his weight on my shoulders. We've already won through Jesus. We just have to remember that greater is he that's in me than any power that's in this world. Let's bow our heads for prayer.